Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. In 1991, a funk rock band produced a song, a, a ballad, very different than their normal music, a very simple lyrics, very simple singing with a very basic acoustic kind of guitar. And in spite of the fact that it's so different from everything else that the band normally played, or perhaps because of that fact, this particular song became extremely popular. It actually hit the very top, number one on the U.S. Billboard charts. It became top ten in other countries around the world as well. Uh, this song was called More Than Words, and it was popular even ten years later when I was in high school. Uh, a lot of students that I knew really rallied around that song. It's very fresh in my mind when I think about my high school time. It was a song about, uh, it, when they asked the, the, the songwriters, what is this song about? Uh, they said it wasn't really, it's a love song, but not about a particular person. It was this idea that they thought the word love was overused. And they didn't want people to just keep saying, I love you, or simply singing about love. They wanted people to demonstrate with their actions love that they felt for other people. And so this song says, more than words is all you have to do to make it real. Then you wouldn't have to say that you love me because I'd already know. Now, you may know this song. It's a fairly sentimental song, but there is a ring of truth to it because all of us understand that what we say with our words can be undercut, can be um, undermined by the actions that we perform with our lives. And probably all of us know that one of the most painful things is that when people tell you they love you and then their actions do something that totally contradicts that. Your words must match your actions. Your actions must measure up to your words. And indeed, they get at this in the song when they say, then you couldn't make things new just by saying, I love you. When someone betrays you, it's not something that words can just paper over. We understand this. And Jesus has had a lot to say about words through the Gospel of Matthew. He's talked about hypocritical words. He says, these people honor me with their lips, with their words, but their hearts are far from me. What I think this song does, though, if you're familiar with it, is that it goes a little bit too far. It doesn't just say that your actions should match your words. That's a fairly simple idea. But it almost goes so far as to suggest that words are not ultimately needed. They're not really all that necessary. It's the idea uh, that really what is only needed are actions. 
He's saying not to say that you shouldn't say these things, but if you only knew how easy it would be to show me how you feel. Actions are the only thing that matter, and words don't matter. And the reason I think this is important, especially in light of the passage that we are about to study, is that I think there is a sense in our culture that devalues the importance of words, of things that we say. There are civilizations in the past where words meant everything. Ages where conscience was a significant thing that if you said something, you were honor and duty bound to live up to it. Today, we don't trust words from other people. We certainly don't trust the words of our politicians. We don't trust the words of our friends. We don't trust the words of our family members. We don't trust words. So really, if something is going to be real, it has to be in actions, not in words. Now again, while Jesus has said much throughout the Gospel of Matthew to point out incongruities, to point out contradictions between the words and what is in our hearts or what we do with our lives, Jesus never in the least suggests that words are unimportant. In fact, as we're going to see, this entire passage revolves around what people say about Jesus. Our relationship to the Lord must be more than words. But what Jesus is pointing out here is that it can never be less than words. We must say something about Jesus. And our big idea from this passage this morning is this. Confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Confess, say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So three parts to our passage today. First, what others say about Jesus. What others say about Jesus. Second, what you say about Jesus. What you say about Jesus. And then third, what Jesus says about his church. What Jesus says about his church. So we'll start with what others say about Jesus in verses 13 through 14. We read in verse 13 that this story takes place in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is very far north. Uh, it is north of Galilee. It is beyond Israelite territory into Gentile territory. Now, as we've been studying the Gospel of Matthew, I've been trying to give special attention to the geography. Sometimes I think, and I've been trying to argue, that there is a very close connection to the geography and what is actually happening. I'm not sure what the case would be here. There's a lot of discussion about why we are told this is Caesarea Philippi. I, I think perhaps the most plausible explanation is that this is just a memory that's fixed in the minds of the disciples of where this momentous confession actually happened. One commentator suggests this, and I'm persuaded by it. You know, just as an older generation, uh, you, you may be a part of this, but remember where you were when Kennedy was assassinated. My generation, no one will forget where we were when 9-11 happened and we figured out what was going to happen there. There are times in life where we never forget where we were when certain things happen. And I think that may be what's in view here. But what happens here is that when they are in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Notice Jesus is asking who are people saying? Who do people say? He's asking about the words that are being spoken about him, the Son of Man. Jesus regularly talks about himself as the Son of Man. That's a, a loaded term. We've talked about that at some points in the past. But who are people saying that the Son of Man is? Well, they're not going back to Daniel chapter 7, where it's 
figures and uh, images the Son of Man as this great one who comes into the presence of the Ancient of Days, what people say about the Son of Man, what people say about Jesus, is that we read in verse 14, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now again, we need to point out what Jesus is observing here is that the relationship of people to him in some way consists of the words that people speak about him. Relationships in all of life consist more than we realize in what we say to each other. What we acknowledge out loud, what we declare, what we use words to promise and vow and bind ourselves to others. And Jesus, again, says much about words in the Gospel of Matthew, especially in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37, where Jesus says that the words that come out of our mouth are like fruit, growing up like a tree, bearing fruit. We sang a song, Psalm 1, today, where we talked about the the righteous are are like trees growing up by uh, streams of water where they're always bearing fruit. Well, some of that fruit is the words that we speak, and if it's really flowing by the Word of God, the words that are going to come out of our mouths from our hearts are going to be gospel, true, righteous words. Jesus is insisting that certainly our relationship to Jesus is going to be more than words. We can't hypocritically speak and expect for that to be okay. But our relationship to Jesus is never less than words. And so the words that people are speaking about Jesus is they are suggesting that maybe he's John the Baptist. This was the opinion that Herod held in Matthew chapter 14, verse 2. Thought that Jesus was Herod raised from the dead. Others Elijah, others Jeremiah, others one of the prophets. Notice that in this, in this list, everyone believes that Jesus is some kind of a prophet. That seems to go without saying. Certainly, the disciples are excluding the opinions of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They would probably not count Jesus as one of the prophets. The only opinions that are given here are all positive. However, we should notice that as flattering as these ideas would be for me or for you, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, these are great, gifted men in the history of God's people. Yet as John Calvin points out, all of these positive ideas fall so far short of the mark when we are speaking of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the reason that these fall short of the mark is that as much as Jesus has been among them, as much as they have been able to observe him, to listen to him, Jesus has veiled much of his identity from the crowds. He has spoken openly, but he's often spoken in parables which veil understanding of who he is from the crowds as a whole. Jesus explains the meaning of his parables to his disciples. To you it has been given to understand the things of the mysteries of heaven, but not to the crowds. What the people do not have is clear revelation of the identity of Jesus, and so they know he's extraordinary in some sense, but they don't have enough information to fill in the gaps. The same thing is true for all of us. Whatever we may have heard about Jesus, whatever we may think we know about Jesus, our best thoughts as we just sort of reason and imagine who we think Jesus is, no matter how good those thoughts may be, they may be partially right, but they cannot be fully correct without God's revelation. 
And no matter how high our minds may imagine, if it's apart from God's revelation, we will always fall short of understanding Jesus for who he is. We need revelation to fill in the gaps. Let me give you an illustration of this. Next year will be the 75th anniversary of the release of the board game Clue. You've probably played Clue. Well, you and countless other eight-year-olds and up for 74 years now, which is a remarkable thing because if you've played Clue, you know that the game is always exactly the same. You're trying to figure out who done it, who committed some murder. We're never told who did or who was murdered, actually, but we know it must be one of six people, Miss Scarlet, Mr. Green, Colonel Mustard, Professor Plum, Mrs. Peacock, or Mrs. White. All of these really horrible people are guilty at one point or another of this crime. And you have to figure out which weapon and in which room. But it's the same game over and over and over. Why does this game bear such repeated play? Because every time it's different. You may have learned some things from the games that you played in the past. Last time it was Colonel Mustard. Last time it was Miss Scarlet. But that has no bearing on the new game. In each new game, you must learn afresh what is true in that particular game. When Jesus comes on the scene, he changes the game. Whatever people may have learned about God's servants in the past, it may give them some kind of an idea of who Jesus is, but there's absolutely no way to guess the truth until that truth is revealed from heaven. And here's why this matters. To go back to what I said earlier, what the people say about Jesus, notice here, it is preventing them from recognizing Jesus for who he is. Jesus is talking about this as what people say about him. And what people say about him is preventing them from believing in Jesus, worshiping Jesus, obeying Jesus as they would God because he is God. But they don't recognize it. More than words are necessary in our relationship to Jesus. But Jesus is getting at a very important issue. It can never be less than words. Well, after surveying these general opinions about what people are saying about Jesus, in the next section, Jesus gets personal. He now asks the disciples point blank, what do you say about who I am? Not what do you think, not what's your opinion, not what do you imagine. What do you say? Who do you say that I am? And so this brings us to the second section, what you say about Jesus. Because again, this isn't just about the disciples 2,000 years ago. This very much is Jesus speaking across the centuries by his Holy Spirit, speaking through these words written down to you and me. Who do you say that Jesus is? Well, notice in verse 15 that Jesus phrases this as a question to all his disciples. He said to them, that's in the plural. But who do you? That's also in the plural. You can, I, I can speak to one single person, and English doesn't differentiate that if I said it to all of you. How do all y'all think about something? If you're in Texas, you can do that. You can't do that so much in Nebraska, but I'll forgive me, I will say it here. How, who do all y'all say about, or who, uh, who I am, that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is a plural. Jesus is speaking to all of them. 
Now, this is so important because we talked about this uh, last week, but when Jesus speaks about his disciples, he's constantly trying to educate them, to help them to perceive and understand, again, what they cannot understand unless he reveals it to them. If you just look back up at the previous passage in verse 9, Jesus said to them, do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet perceive? And then in verse 11, how is it that you fail to understand? They don't perceive yet. They do not understand. Jesus wants to give them understanding. It's going to have to come by revelation. But here Jesus doesn't fill in the gap. He's asking them a question. Who do you say that I am? Do you understand yet? And in verse 16, Simon Peter, as a representative for the other apostles, steps forward and replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this is such a profound statement. Don't get in your mind that Peter said more than he understood. Don't let yourself think that maybe G Peter's just stumbling along and doesn't really understand this, but just says this. What Jesus is about to recognize is that the flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but his Father in heaven. What Peter is speaking are the words of God. These are the words of God. You are the Christ Jesus, the Son of the living God. We need to pay attention to this. We need to wrestle with this as the church has wrestled with this for 2,000 years. What does Peter confess? How should it shape what we confess and say about Jesus? Well, first he says, you are the Christ. The word Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. Both Christ in the Greek and Messiah in Hebrew are both mean in English anointed one. Now, if you remember what the crowds say, the crowds actually called Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, in one sense in the sense that one of the anointed prophets or, or offices of the Old Testament were prophets. They're acknowledging that Jesus is in some sense a prophet, and prophets were anointed with oil, as you can read the Old Testament declaring. But that wasn't the only office that was anointed with oil. Priests were anointed with oil. Kings were anointed with oil. Sometimes people held two of these offices. Never three. Never three. And so what Peter is acknowledging that goes further than what the rest of the crowds were acknowledging was that Jesus is God's prophet, God's priest, and God's king. Anointed not with oil, but anointed with what the oil symbolized, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Anointed with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. This is Jesus Christ. Now, what we should pay attention to this is that the term Christ, the title Christ, is a human title. The Messiahs, and many people are acknowledged as Messiahs in the Old Testament, little m Messiah, anointed ones in the Old Testament, were all human beings. Even bad human beings. David says, I will not lift up my hand against Saul, God's anointed one, God's Messiah. Why? Because he is the anointed one of God. To call Jesus the Christ was to acknowledge that he filled a human office as a servant of the Lord. But notice Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't say you are the Christ, full stop. He continues, and he says the Son of the living God. Jesus is not less than a human servant. He is fully 
completely, truly human, and yet he is far more than meets the eye. He is far more than a human servant. This is the Son of God. What Peter is understanding here is the most significant issue about Jesus, not simply what he does, his office, his function, the Christ, the anointed one, but understands who Jesus is, his identity. He was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, how does Jesus respond to this? He responds with great praise. In verse 7, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Bar simply means son of. Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you. This is the same language that Jesus used in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. All of those blessed people. Jesus now says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. The blessed life, the life that we sang about in Psalm 1. How blessed the man who does not walk where wicked men would guide their feet. On and on and on. That blessed life shown forth in the Old Testament, particularly in Psalm 1 that we sang earlier, and also in the Beatitudes back in Matthew chapter 5. The blessedness of life requires an understanding and a confession of who Jesus is. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then Jesus continues, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The blessedness of Peter that Jesus is acknowledging is a blessedness of the source of his intelligence, the source of the knowledge. It's not enough for us to reason according to the flesh. As high as we might rise in acknowledging, well, Jesus must be some special person, some prophet of God, I'm sure, doesn't get high enough. The blessedness of Peter is that he is understanding something that has come to him that could only have come to him through divine revelation. And when we think about what we say about Jesus, what are you going to say about Jesus? This is essential in this question. How do you come to know what you should say about who Jesus is? Well, a lot of that's going to depend upon the sources that you trust. We are right now in the middle of a huge story in the world revolving around intelligence sources. If you've been following the news in the Middle East, the deadly, wicked terrorist attack of Hamas against the nation of Israel, one of the key stories that arisen in that story is the failure of Israel's intelligence to see this attack coming. It's very similar to what happened 20 years ago at 9-11. In both cases, there was intelligence, there were sources that were pointing to the fact that something could happen, something was about to happen. But in those cases, the problem was trying to identify the signal, the kernel of truth amid all of the noise, all of the other sources saying this and that and this and that. And in both cases, a failure of intelligence, a failure of trusting the right sources was horrifically deadly. The sources we trust, the intelligence we trust is always going to be a matter of life and death in eternity that Jesus is telling us. Who do you trust? Because what Jesus is showing us here, that what we say about Jesus depends on the sources we are listening to. And again, this is of so, such importance. 
the words you use matter. What you say about Jesus matters. What Peter says about Jesus was why he was blessed. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Yes, our relationship to Jesus requires more than words, but never, never, never less than words. Well, Jesus is asked about what others say about him, about what his disciples say about him, about what people say about him based on human understanding, what people say about him depending on divine understanding. But now Jesus has something of his own to say about his church. This brings us to the third section, what Jesus says about his church in verses 18 through 20. Jesus continues, and I tell you, I say to you, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is an extraordinary acknowledgement. You are probably aware that this is one of the more controversial verses, especially in the Western church in the entire Bible. The division of the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, of which we find our own tradition, um, is a division about how to interpret this particular verse. You were Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Uh, you probably know that there is a wordplay here. Peter, Petros, is a word that means rock, and it's related to the word that Jesus goes, and on this rock, Petra, Petra, Petros, Petra. Jesus is making a wordplay between Peter and the rock on which he will build his church. So the question is, what is this rock and what's the significance of the rock on which Jesus will build his church? Now, according to the Roman Catholic Church, what Jesus is doing here is he is recognizing and giving primacy to Peter, exalting him above the other apostles. And then relatedly, because of what Peter said, or Jesus says to Peter here, Jesus is also by extension extending this primacy to the church that Peter planted in Rome, that Rome would have a primacy over all the other churches. And then by another extension, the idea is that Jesus has then extended this primacy through the ages, continuing in the church at Rome and continuing in whoever sits in the office, the seat of the bishop of Rome, whom you probably know as the pope to this day. Now, there, you, I hope you see there's a lot of extensions here. Jesus says one thing, and this has been extended a couple of different times uh, into the claim of papal supremacy, Roman supremacy, and this is why we call the Roman Catholic Church because of its Romanness, the supremacy of Rome over the other churches. Now, we have to consider, what does this mean? What is Jesus actually saying here? Protestants reject this claim, but it's very important to understand a couple of things. First of all, we reject the claims of the Roman Catholic Church about the primacy of Peter and the primacy of Rome over the other churches, and certainly of the claims of the Roman Catholic Church over Protestant churches. We reject those claims on the basis of what the text says, but it's also very important that we're not just making this up. We didn't make this up in the 16th century. We are rejecting this claim on the basis of the way the early church interpreted this verse. Now, let me show you a couple of ways, a couple of arguments. I'll rank these in terms of what is possible to uh, what is stronger to what is the strongest as we think about why we don't follow uh, Roman Catholic claims of Roman and papal supremacy over the other churches. 
The first, an argument that is possible, that is very ancient in the church, is that there is an important difference between the Petra, which is the rock on which Jesus will build his church. That is a word that, uh, at least in one version of Greek, refers to like a, a rocky cliff, like a rock face, versus the word Petras, Peter, which refers to a single stone, a single rock. And as one of the church fathers, Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430 A.D., well before the Protestant Reformation, Augustine, who's quoted by John Calvin, one of the reformers who was trying to correct some of the misinterpretations of this verse, uh, Augustine points out that it is not the Petra, the rock face, that is derived from Petras, Peter, from the rock, but it's rather Peter who is derived from the rock face. In other words, the church is not derived from Peter. Peter is derived from the church. And that's embedded and coded in the actual language that Jesus uses here. Now, some would dispute that on basis of, of the language. Um, if Jesus was speaking in Aramaic, that wouldn't have quite that distinction, and yet it is written in Greek, and so the distinction remains there. Uh, but let's just take that argument, and you can think about that argument. Uh, let me give you a stronger argument. The stronger argument is that Jesus is very clearly here not blessing Peter alone, but Peter as a representative of all the apostles. Now, this is really important because this is something that the early church was very clear about in how they interpreted this. Let me go back to a man named Cyprian of Carthage who died in 248 AD. He lived in the third century, just a couple of hundred years after Jesus uttered these words originally. Cyprian of Carthage wrote this. He says, In the person of one man, the Lord gave the keys to all, to signify the unity of all. The rest were the same as Peter was, endowed with an equal share, both of honor and of power. But the beginning arose from unity that the church of Christ may be shown to be one. Do you hear what that's saying? That's saying if you take this as a verse that raises or elevates Peter above all the other churches, you have by definition right out of the gate destroyed the unity of the church. The unity for which Jesus bled and died that he prayed for in the high priestly prayer, prayer let them be one, Father, as you and I have been one before the foundations of the earth. That is annihilated right out of the gate. If Peter is on one plane and the rest of the apostles are on another plane, the early church never interpreted it that way. Peter was a representative of the whole. And Peter is always acting like that in the Gospels. And often he's putting his foot in his mouth as in the very next passage. He's speaking ahead of the rest and Jesus is instructing all of his disciples through what Peter says, whether what Peter says is correct or incorrect. But then continue. What Jesus is saying here is he is talking about the unity of the church. Understand, when we talk about the Roman Catholic Church, our problem is not with the Catholicism of the church. It's very important. Don't, don't call the Roman Catholic Church the Catholic Church. Because our problem is not with the Catholicism of the church. In, in a little bit later, we are actually going to confess that we believe in one holy Catholic church. That's important. We do believe because the word Catholic is a word that means out of the whole. It's a word that means universal. We believe in the unity of the universal church throughout all ages and all places and all times. Our problem is not with the Roman Catholic church Catholicism. 
Our problem is with the extra-biblical ideas of Roman papal supremacy. Ideas that annihilate, destroy the unity of the whole church. It was never the way the early church understood this passage. It was not what the scriptures say. It shouldn't be how we interpret this passage today. But the strongest argument for rejecting those claims is that there's absolutely no biblical evidence for apostolic succession. Now, probably this, we should be acknowledging something special about Peter here. I don't deny that. Most biblical evangelical commentators do not deny this. Peter is especially honored here. However, he is honored as a representative of the whole, not as one outside of the whole. But even if you recognize something special happening with Peter here, nowhere in the rest of the scriptures do we hear any idea that the apostolic authority of Peter here is passed on. There are no procedures for passing on apostolic authority from Peter or any of the other apostles to anyone following them. And if you read the letters that are written in the early church after the, the, the New Testament is written, you recognize there's a clear distinction between the apostles who came before these men and the rest of the church who stood on the foundation laid by those apostles, namely the foundation of Jesus Christ, of which Christ is the cornerstone. What this means is that I am not an apostle. I am not the successor to an apostle in any sense. What the scriptures show is a passing off of the ministry from apostles to elders. That's the office I inhabit today. I am a teaching elder in the church of Jesus Christ. I am not an apostle. I rather stand on the foundation that they have laid. And how did they lay that foundation? By their words. By what they said about Jesus. By what they said about Jesus as written down in the scriptures of the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, which was God's inspired word as well. The scriptures of the Old and New Testament, that is the foundation of the church, pointing infallibly to Jesus Christ who died for us. Well, all this being said, what kind of a church then has Jesus established? Well, Jesus, after he acknowledges this great controversial thing, you, Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The word there for hell is the word Hades. It is a word that can mean death as well as the idea of an eternal punishment. But if you see where gates of Hades is included in the Old Testament as well as the New, it's the idea of death. It means that death itself, I'm persuaded by D.A. Carson on this point, that death itself will not prevail over the church. Even death cannot keep you from the kingdom of God under the kingship of Jesus Christ. Well, then Jesus goes on in verse 19, and he continues describing the church. He's continuing to tell us something, to say something about his church. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be, shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The keys of the kingdom, which mean whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever we loosed on earth will, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, this is language that gets picked up a little bit later if you sort of look over the page, if you have a Bible like mine, uh, to Matthew chapter 18, verse 18, where Jesus is talking about the role of discipline. If your brother sins against you, you go to him. And if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the, elder, or by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, 
Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same language, both places. We are seeing here the binding and the loosing. And we are seeing Jesus describe this binding and loosing as keys. Uh, think about chains held by a padlock. And the idea is that these keys can open this. Whatever you open the padlock, you free the chains. That's loosing. And whatever you close and the key locks that padlock up again is bound. And we have two versions of this. The keys of what we see here, doctrine. And we see in chapter 18 the key of discipline. Now let me explain to you what's happening here. Jesus is talking about the authority of the church, the power of the church. What kind of power does the church have? Well, let me start by saying what it doesn't have. The church does not have power to legislate new doctrines that are outside of the written word of the Bible. The church does not have power to bring discipline outside of what Jesus Christ declares must happen in his church. The church has no power for such things. But Jesus Christ truly does give his church keys, authority. And by this authority, the church has power to do two things. First of all, to preach and proclaim true doctrine about Jesus Christ. Not doctrine that I make up, or that the elders of this church make up, or that our presbytery or denomination makes up, or doctrine that is made up in some other place, like the Westminster Standards. We don't think those are made up. We think those are biblical statements of the doctrine that is laid down in Scripture itself. The authority of the church is authority that is limited, circumscribed, bound by the Word of God to proclaim who Jesus is. That's the authority of the church. As well as the authority to institute the kind of discipline that admits people into the kingdom of heaven, through the preaching of the gospel, through welcoming people into membership, as well as that sometimes, tragically, sadly, when people no longer give a clear um, profession that is credible, that what they are saying with their words about their belief in Jesus any more credibly can be seen to classify what's happening in their hearts as evidenced by their external behavior. When the church has to close people off from the church, to excommunicate them from the church, that's the other power. We don't have any kind of authority beyond that. But how does this power work? Is the tail wagging the dog? Are we doing things on this earth that then we tell Jesus and Jesus says, okay, got it. That's what we'll do up here too. That's not the way this works. Jesus has declared things in heaven and the authority of the church, the keys that are given to the church for binding and loosing is what William Perkins, a Puritan who lived in the late 1500s, describes as the power to publish and to pronounce what Christ binds or looses. That is all the authority we have, to publish and pronounce what Christ binds or looses, both in doctrine as well as in discipline. Now, this is a profound passage, but it's incomplete. We have to stop here and say, to be continued, Lord willing, next week. And so we sort of end on a pause in verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Why? Because they don't understand they understand truly in part that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and yet they have no idea what that means. 
We'll have to come back to that, Lord willing, in the next passage where we see that we cannot simply acknowledge Jesus Christ, but we must preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, application comes today in this. I'm going to go back to my big idea. Say or confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus came to build His church upon Himself. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11 says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus then appointed officers in the earliest church, the apostles and the prophets, who would teach true, true doctrine, true words about Himself that would be recorded in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. As Ephesians 2 verse 20 puts it, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone of what the apostles and prophets preached. What happens then here is that Peter is not just passing a pop quiz. Peter is exemplifying apostolic office, the apostolic ministry as he confesses true doctrine. Now to this day, the church exists to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified, to say right words about Jesus Christ and to teach you to say right words about Jesus Christ. Not to do this as though this were some magic formula, to do it in a formalistic, formulaic, mechanical, devoid of the heart kind of a way. But it's a recognition that what we say matters in our relationship to Jesus. And in fact, the Holy Spirit uses His words to shape our words so that our words can then in turn shape our thinking and our hearts so that we think rightly about Jesus, so that we love Jesus rightly, so that we relate to Him by faith. And so Jesus begins to transform our hearts so that more true words bubble up about Him. You see, how we think affects how we speak, but also how we speak affects how we think and how we feel. The love and desire that we have for Jesus Christ, your words about Jesus matter. So the application is simple. Believe and confess what the church has always proclaimed, not on the authority of the church. The church is not derived, or the, the, the gospel is not derived from the church. The church is derived, it is built upon the foundation of what is laid down in the word of God, which declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, don't believe in what I am preaching this morning because of me or because of the session of this church or our presbytery, our denomination, the Westminster Standards, any of this. Believe this because God has given it to you. Your Father in heaven has revealed it to you in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. The church then is a pillar and buttress of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 when the church preaches from Scripture, because Scripture testifies to the personal work of Jesus, that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Test them. This is your work. Don't give some implicit, mindless faith. You are to be testing this like good Bereans, considering what I'm saying against Scripture. And if I get it wrong, come talk to me. Confront me with that. Because I'm under the authority of the Scriptures, just like you. So the question I have from this passage today is, do you confess, do you say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Do you believe that He is your only refuge from the gates of hell, from the power of death? That He is your only source of forgiveness and righteousness before God? 
because of your guilt and your sin, that's your only hope, your only refuge, that he is your only comfort and satisfaction in this life and the next. Your relationship to Jesus will require more than words, but it will never require less than words. What do you say about Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would lead us to speak rightly, not for our lips to honor you while our hearts are from, far from you like hypocrites, but that you would lead us rightly in the paths of truth as you conform our minds and our thinking and our hearts and our desiring to your word, to Jesus Christ and him crucified, the Son of the living God whom you sent forth in flesh as a true human being to take the office of prophet, priest, and king so that I might be reconciled to you, so that we might be reconciled to you. Father, by the power of your Spirit, give us faith in your Son, Jesus, that we might know him and the power of his death and resurrection from this time forth and forevermore. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.